Marriage. Is it the sacred relationship between a husband and wife where in obedience to God they love each other and reflect in their intimacy the eternal intimacy that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Or is it the glorious liberation of today when you as an individual are free to create for yourself a marriage according to your needs and desires? Before you begin to color in your personal views, wouldn't it be wise to begin with someone who is often left out of the equation in the public debates? Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson. Everybody knows what marriage is, right? Of course, marriage is a sacred union between a man and a woman in which they love each other in obedience to God. They obey God's commands and they propagate. They fill the earth with children that are in love with God. Everybody knows that's what marriage is, right? Wrong. Do you realize that your culture is in a tremendous debate about what marriage is? To be honest with you, the basic definition of marriage in our culture is that it's two people who love each other, in quotes, whatever that is, and they choose to live together as companions as long as they're in love with each other. And when love runs out, they move on to other people that they love. And I also want you to know that because two males can have that kind of companionship, our culture is debating that that should be a marriage. And you might have a female and a female. That can be a marriage because can't two females decide we're going to live together, we're going to be able to have this companionship, and we should have the same recognition. And we get really upset about that. It's a big debate in our culture. By the way, it's gaining a whole lot of ground because the homosexual community has a lot of clout as a, as a lobbying group, and there's a lot of gifted people among them. You need to really pray for them that they'll come to know Jesus. But I want you to think of the way that we define marriage right here in our group. The way most of us, a lot of us define marriage is marriage is a companionship relationship that we love each other, we live together, but when the love runs out and we're not really companions anymore, in fact, we start to hate each other, we just dissolve the relationship and we move on to other people. We move on to one other person or a second person or a third person. That's the dominant way that Americans decide what marriage is. Then you'll also be exposed to all kinds of programs that talk about the history of the marriage. In history, you'll be able to find any combination that you want. In fact, if you'll open up the Bible, you're going to find out that some of the great saints, they were polygamous. Not too many women that had many husbands, but you're going to find a lot of the great saints like David, Abraham. And so in the popular marketplace, as you debate this, you're going to find out, well, the Bible itself says that there's all these relationships. By the way, polygamy is not really that in in our culture because there's not too many polygamists that have that strong media clout. But I could use the same arguments for why not just have a man with multiple partners, you know, multiple women, or a woman with multiple men if she can afford it. If it's just based upon companionship, that's the way the debate goes. I want you also to face the fact that you need to think about where am I getting this definition? You live in a culture where we call it modernity. Or postmodernism is a fancy name for it, but there's a tremendous force in the world that says that you as an individual, you as an individual have the freedom to decide the way you're going to live your life. That idea of individual responsibility really flows out of the scripture 
Because the scripture says that you need to believe in the Son of God, which is a tremendous stress upon individuality. In fact, God respects you as an individual so much that he'll let you choose. If you don't want to spend eternity with him, you can live away from him. It's not going to be a good place, but that's really what hell is. It's making a decision. I don't want anything to do with the living God that's there. I don't want to obey his commands. I don't want anything to do with him. I want to do what I want to do. I want all the young people especially to understand that there's a tremendous force in the world that I can live my life any way I want to live it. I, as an individual, have the right to choose. And as we debate it, we basically decide if 51% of Americans decide that this is what marriage is, that's what marriage is. And if that changes in 10 years, then we'll vote again. It's tremendous force within our culture. Even when I talk to you about it, you get really visceral about it. You get angry about it. You get upset. What is? Big question mark. What is marriage? And what I'm appealing to you is that there's somebody that's really left out of this equation. When we ask, what's the definition of marriage? As I talk with, with my, my homosexual friends, and they're trying to define marriage, and I talk to, to many Americans, like most of your young people have decided you just live together. If you love somebody, it's wrong to have sex, you know, promiscuously. But if I'm a college student, my freshman year at UT, or even at A&M, or at Baylor, which is a Christian school supposedly, if we love each other, and if we really connected in our freshman year, and we're really devoted to each other, then of course we live together. In fact, you know, that would be the normal way, and we try everything out. That, that's the normal way. That's where your culture is. So you define marriage as marriage is what happens after I live with my partner for maybe 10 years. And we get our job settled, we get enough money, we, we start to save money, and then after we figure out our job, we figure out where we're going to live, then we get married as the final step. After we bought our house, after we lived together, after all that, that's where your culture is. As you're living in all this flux, instead of being so angry about it, I want you all to ask yourself, who defines marriage for you? And I want to begin today with a very important person that's often left out of the equation. And his name is, in the beginning, everybody tell me, in the beginning, open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. One of the things I want to encourage you to do, especially you young people, especially you mom and dad helping your kids, I want you to realize that that's an incredible statement. Genesis 1 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning... When you had mass and energy, before the Big Bang, where mass and energy was, was back into this infinitesimally small thing, and you can study science and study all of that, and I don't have time to go into that, but I've studied the cosmology, the stories, the origin stories of Egypt, the origin stories of Mesopotamia, the origin stories of modern America, which is evolution. That's our myth. That's our belief in how things came into being. And all those stories have tremendous power. So I want you to ask yourself, as you open up the page of the Bible, Moses is trying to get two million people ready to be a nation. He's trying to get them ready to be able to go into foreign territory, be able to establish a land and a people and to raise families. And what he's doing in Genesis is, is he's trying to get them ready. And amazingly, he says, it all begins with God. In the beginning, God, out of nothing, created the heaven and the earth. And then the next verse says, now the earth, that means that the story of this planet is the story of the Bible. I want you all to understand that. 
You don't want to just take what we say in science about the creation of the universe and just equal it to Genesis chapter 1. You need to, the Bible tells a story about this earth, about you. You're the important person in this story other than God. And you need to understand that the Bible actually starts out not telling you all about the creation of the universe, although it says God did all of it. So that you, and that's said over and over again in God's word. But it also tells you that the story is going to be about this present earth. And it actually starts out a very dramatic story because it's all dark. All you can hear is this raging waters and the wind blowing. And you wonder like nothing, the whole earth, it's like Waterworld and Kevin Costner. And suddenly the scripture says, now the earth was empty and it was formless. And the Bible right away is telling you something's really crazy. Nothing can live in this world. Everything's empty. Everything's formless. There's no ships. There are no continents. There's nothing but darkness and raging ocean. So the Bible's telling you that you live in an emptiness and a formlessness unless God speaks. It says God's spirit. So we're introduced right in the very first page of the Bible that there is a powerful spirit which we know from the New Testament and from as the Old Testament developed the story that there's a Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. We're already introduced to the incredible, wondrous doctrine that God is personal, but he's actually three persons in one. But it tells us something really powerful about that spirit. It says that the spirit is hovering over this chaos, over this darkness, over this formlessness and emptiness. The spirit of God hovers. And then we have those incredible words. Look at it in Genesis chapter 1. It says, and God said, let there be light. When all of you little children know, like when you're all in a dark at night and you wake up in the middle of the night and you're scared and it's all dark. Like my James and Scarlett have been with Mary and, and myself the last uh, two days. When I got up early this morning, it was still dark and Laura had left the light on for them. So that when they got up in the middle of the night, they wouldn't be in darkness. The scripture says, in the beginning, God turned on the lights. And what it means for you is that God is the one that you need to begin with. And he's the one that will take the emptiness of your life and the formlessness of your life and the deadliness of the environment you live in, and he turns on the light. And as we move through Genesis chapter 1, it culminates... Rather than the story of naturalistic evolution, it culminates not with this little planet that's insignificant and meaningless, and you as a human being are just caught in the great cosmic nothingness. The Bible actually tells a story where the one that created everything says you're important. In fact, all over Moses' world, in Genesis chapter 1, Moses wrote these words everywhere that the children of Israel, especially in Egypt, where they had just spent 400 years, there's images of their gods. There's crocodile gods. There's falcon gods. There are even fraud gods. The Pharaoh says he's the image of God. He's the resemblance of God. He represents the personification of God on earth. And he used that to control people. But when you read, and God said, let us make humans, let us make Adam, which comes from the word Adama, which means the ground. So you need to always remember, you're just a pile of dirt. Unless God does something. And God says, let us make Adam, and let us make him be our image. And make him, let's make him like us. 
And so it says, then God says, let us make men in the image of God. Let us make them male and female. So every one of you men and every one of you women, not just men, throughout the ancient world. So like when people tell you, well, the Bible is culturally bound, Moses is going counterculture. Right away, as he tells the Israelites, he's going totally counterculture. He's saying, you men, you think you're made in the image of the ultimate creator of the universe? I want you to know the woman's made in the image of God. It went totally against the teaching of the ancient world, from, of the vast majority of the teaching of the ancient world. All of you women should say, amen. Praise God for that. Because right away in Genesis chapter 1, it says, as our God begins to define marriage, he says it's going to involve a man and not another man. So if you want to listen to God, it says a woman and a man, not another woman. And the, in other words, the architect of the universe is saying, hey, when I start making the schematic drawings of family life, and as I start talking about marriage, we're going to begin with a man and a woman. You know why that's so? Because God's plan is for a married couple to be fruitful and multiply. His very first command was be fruitful and multiply. Having kids is a really important thing to do. In our church family, that's one of the things we do really well. We might not obey in a lot of areas, but man, you fill the nursery. I want you to be blessed in that. That's a marvelous thing because the architect is saying you have a man and a woman, and they're to be fruitful and multiply, and they rule over the earth. The way that you rule over the earth is that you fill it, which we've done a good job with, and you fill it, with the children that are the blessing from the Lord. I want you to evaluate all that you hear about marriage based upon that. God is saying that the big crisis in the universe is that God created us to be like him and to rule and represent him. And if we do that, we're filling the emptiness and the chaos and we live. Genesis chapter 1 is all about the God who creates life. He gives us the instruction that if we obey him, then we're going to live. That's one of the basic ideas that Moses was teaching the Hebrews. And I want all of you to ask yourself, who do you think gives you life? One thing that individualism is right about is you do make choices. And your choices make a really big difference. And the choice of Genesis chapter 1 is, do you believe that there's a creator that turns on the light, that makes this earth inhabitable, creates continents, makes a beautiful home for you to live in, and he's the one that gave you life? He's the one that made you a person? He's the one that created men and women to be able to connect together and even to be able to work sexually so they can produce kids? He's the author of it all, and he's saying, I'm the God that loves you. I'm the God that will give you life. And you can say, I don't believe any of that. You can decide that. But then you just walked, according to the scriptures, into a realm of death, into a realm of destruction. When you turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it says, now this is the story of the heaven and the earth. And then God begins to tell you another story where he gets up close and personal in Genesis chapter 2 about the creation of Adam and Eve. That's the really important thing. And as you read Genesis chapter 2, which a lot of you have read over and over and over again, God, first of all, creates Adam, the man. And he tells the man, you live in this beautiful garden, and I created it all for you. You can eat of all the fruit of it. Then he tells the man, there's one tree, don't eat from it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the argument is, God is saying, I'm the one that decides good and evil. 
I'm the one that decides life and death. I'm the one that decides righteousness and wickedness. That's the idea that Moses is teaching the people. All of you have the idea, I can decide what's right. No, you can't because you're not God. So if you choose, you leave this morning and say, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That's fine. You'll die because you'll make bad choices. You can define your life. God will let you define your life. You just can't control the results. It's really powerful. The Lord is saying that he created Adam, and he says, Adam, if you want to live, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, I've given you this beautiful garden, and what I want you to do is I want you to take care of it. So the Lord is blessing, in Genesis chapter 2, your everyday normal life. He's blessing you men and women that are going to go to schools and go to factories and go to offices, and he's saying, I want to be involved with you because I created man and I created him to be able to work the ground. If you're a farmer, you're really close to God's original intent. That's an incredible vocation. But all of us are part of that. He's saying, and as you work your everyday life, I want you to be obedient to me. And we begin with a very simple command. Just don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. How many think that's really hard? Pretty simple. You can eat every one of the fruit of the tree. Just don't eat this one. Then God creates a woman, the first wife. This is the first marriage ceremony. He says he took Eve from Adam's side, put him to sleep, first surgery, put Adam to sleep. And he says, man needs an ally. He needs a companion. He needs someone to walk with him. They're going to be part of each other's body. So God brings Eve to Adam. Adam yells out, wow, at last, after I named all those animals, finally I've got the companion that I really need. She's the one that corresponds to me. She's the one that fits with me. She's the one that is taken out of me. Marvelous story. And man, they lived happily ever after. And that's where the story gets really tense. You see, in the beginning, God, God's got a great purpose. He wants a husband and wife to serve him in just everyday life. And the first thing we do is there's a snake in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, who we don't have any idea, we know he's one of God's creations. And it's weird because you wouldn't think of animals talking. So Eve should have had her defenses up. But after all, they're just in the garden. You know, who knows whether animals talk or not. But we know from Genesis chapter 1 that there's chaos. That something's already really screwed up. There's an anti-life. There's an anti-order. There's an anti-beauty. There's an anti-truth. The Bible introduces that, which suddenly there was a snake in the garden. And he says, Eve, God isn't good. If God were good, he would let you do whatever you want to do. He'd let you decide what marriage is supposed to be. He'd let you decide what family is supposed to be. He would let you decide what you're going to do because you're a modern person. You need to be able to individually decide what you're going to do. Isn't that right? That's what the serpent said. He's saying that to you today. You follow your passions. God's going to mess your whole life up. Christianity is one of the most ugly things you could ever learn about. It doesn't believe in sexuality. And a lot of my friends leave husbands and they leave their families because you got to live. If your life is caving in, you need to just do your thing. And that's where I want to really challenge you. Who's going to be the authority in your life? Who are you going to believe can give you life? I'm so glad 
that when I was a little bitty kid, I had some adults like you, including my parents, that said, you know, Dave, in the beginning, God, he will give you life. They challenged me to get into the word of God, and I found out the word of God isn't anti-sexuality, like a lot of the history of Christendom. That the Bible really doesn't teach that if you want to be holy, you never have sex. My parents taught me that there's whole books that celebrate the joy of marital sexual love. And so I need to really read the Bible carefully so that even when I read Elizabeth Gilbert, Elizabeth Gilbert would think that 1 Corinthians 7 is the Apostle Paul telling you if you really want to be holy, you need to never have have relationships with a woman. And that Paul taught that marriage is an evil thing. That's why you need to read 1 Corinthians 7 really carefully because Elizabeth Gilbert doesn't exegete. She doesn't interpret Scripture very good. But she's telling you that you, your Bible's screwed up and Christianity's messed up. And by the way, Christendom is messed up. But I want to challenge you. You need to read the Bible for yourself. You want to whet your appetite because when you read Elizabeth Gilbert, she's a great writer. She just totally misses Paul's point because Paul didn't teach that marriage was a bad thing. We're going to learn in the coming weeks, he's the one that took marriage to the highest place. It not only represents the Trinity, but it represents Christ's incredible relationship with his bride. Paul made marriage the most sacred, holy thing imaginable. He he was a single guy that told us how beautiful marriage is. That's how you know the Bible's inspired. But a lot of you are just going to watch Oprah. You're going to read Elizabeth Gilbert. You're going to know them a lot better than you know your Bible. My plea to you today is Genesis 3 tells us about an incredible snake in the garden. And the first thing that Eve did was eat the fruit. God said, don't eat of it. And Adams took it. He was the one that was really responsible. And the whole story should have ended right there. Because God said, in the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. And they died spiritually. And God could have just said, that's it. Let's start out with another piece of dirt. But that's where Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is so important. Look at it. We come back to this verse again and again. This is the beginning of the heart of God's story that he's writing in Scripture. And he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says to the serpent, I'm going to put tremendous animosity. Look at it. I'm going to put tremendous animosity between you and the woman. So ladies, there's going to be a tremendous wrestling match going on in your life. There's going to be a tremendous fight going on in your life. The serpent wants to destroy your life. And that's going to continue throughout human history. Between your offspring, Eve was going to produce a seed. The word offspring means seed. She was going to produce a line where some of them would really be committed to God that I'm teaching about this morning and committed to who I'm going to tell you about in just a minute. But the human race through Eve is also going to create A seed that's going to be like Adam and Eve in following the serpent. Great animosity between your seed, the seed of the serpent, all those that obey him and listen to him, and the seed that obeys God. And then it says something incredibly important. It says he, Eve's going to produce a great male child who's going to crush the serpent's head. And yet, the serpent's going to be able to strike his heel. That's the beginning of the gospel. As we begin to ask the story of marriage, and what is a marriage? A marriage, according to God, is not a man and a man, not a man and a woman and a woman and a woman and a woman. 
It's not a woman and a man and a man and a man. It's not a woman and a woman. According to Genesis chapter 1 through 3, it is a man and a woman that are supposed to obey God, starting with the simplest story imaginable, just don't eat from one tree, and they'll live happy ever after. But then the crisis in the story, they blow it right at the very beginning. And that's when the story really begins. Because it's going to be a story of redemptive grace. It's going to be the story of a husband that meets a wife. And they're controlled by disobedience. And they're controlled by failure. That's why even among our churches, our divorce rates aren't much different than unbelievers. If you carefully read the story of the Bible, you're going to find out that the great saints have multiple partners. King David, who's the ultimate king in Israel that represents Jesus, is a murderer and adulterer. You need to really understand the story. When you read the story of the scripture, it's a story of tremendous failure. So you need to understand that you've got a nature inside of you that will want to do what Elizabeth Gilbert wants you to do, eat Go and learn about meditation and then find a beautiful Brazilian and live happily ever after till the Department of Homeland Security says, hey, you got to get married if you're going to be together. Then she starts exploring, why do we have covenants, which we're going to talk about the next time we get together. But my point today is who defines marriage for you? Who defines marriage for you? I want to go deeper than that. Who do you think can really make you alive? If you follow them, that when you get all done, you'll find out, boy, I followed the right instructions. You think Oprah can lead you that way? You think Elizabeth Gilbert can lead you that way? You think some of your friends, you think all your peers in high school can lead you that way? All your friends in college? I want you to realize that you got an incredible creator God who wants to be your daddy in heaven, and he says, I want to challenge you. Listen to me. And what he's saying is that marriage is a husband and a wife that he brings together as the ultimate daddy. But he also teaches us that we're going to have to look to his son that we're not just going to be good moralists, good husbands and wives, we're going to fail. Because the serpent's going to lead us into sin. And so right at the very beginning of the Bible, God begins to say that the story of your marriage needs to be a story not of two good church-going kids that did everything right, never failed. And so they can tell everybody else, look at us, we know how to do it. Instead, God tells a story of two sinners desperately in need of the great serpent slayer and that he can take out of the chaos and the disorder of our rebellious lives when we realize that the great serpent slayer has come to jump way ahead in the story and he crushed the serpent's head and he forgave you for your sins so you can build your marriage on forgiveness and saying, I'm sorry. And that Savior not only died on the cross of your sins, but he rose again from the dead, which means today 
as I talk to every child, as I talk to every teenager, as I talk to every adult husband and wife, as I talk to single people, if you've accepted Jesus in your heart, then the resurrection power of Jesus has come to live inside of you. It's come to help you to be able to have discernment, to help you to make wise decisions about who you listen to and whether or not you listen to Genesis 1 through 3. And that's what I pray as we begin this series on what is marriage. My passion is I want you to begin to really listen carefully to the debate in our culture. But I want you to get underneath the debate. I want you to ask yourself, where is Elizabeth Gilbert? Who's she listening to? Where does she get her advice? Where does she get her instructions? Where does Dave get what he told us this morning? And I want you to decide as an individual whether you really believe I'm going to follow the living God. I'm made in his image. So I ask you this morning, Whose image do you reflect? Whose voice are you really listening to? What have you learned from the story of Genesis 1 through 3? Are you really letting the resurrected power of the Savior help you as a husband, to help you as a wife? Where the rubber meets the road is on Wednesday morning, I have a Folgers 13-ounce plastic container filled with with junk, crud, all of our leftovers. There is on top of it a coffee filter filled with coffee grounds. And right beside it, there is another filter filled with coffee grounds. And I went to pick up the coffee filter, and Mary says to me, she's on the counter having her devotions early in the morning, and says, don't turn the coffee grounds upside down. And I'm thinking in my head, how stupid do you think I am? You think I'm going to take the coffee grounds and spill it all over the place? With that, I grabbed the second filter filled with coffee grounds, and it tore, and I spilled them all over the place. The first thing that came to my mind, how could you be so stupid, Mary, that you put a second coffee filter filled with coffee grounds, and you left him with an accident waiting to happen. It's all your fault. And I'm thinking in my head, you're an idiot. Why do I do that? Because I'm Adam. And that's why you do it. That's what destroys relationships. That's what destroys marriages. But there's a little voice inside that said, Dave, don't go there. There's a savior that said, don't call your brother an idiot. And that would include, don't call Mary, your beloved companion, an idiot. Because the Holy Spirit came to my life when I was five years of age. And he's an incredible instructor, an incredible comfort. And he says, don't you say that. And I need to decide. And Mary looked at me and said, I'll clean it up. So the person that I was getting ready to call an idiot, and I'm thinking, I know I'm clumsy. I know I could play quarterback and run through linebackers and not get knocked down and have a lot of grace. But when I am doing normal, everyday things, I spill everything. And I'm all defensive, which all of you guys are. But the companion that the Lord gave me, my Eve, wasn't ready to call me an idiot. 
So I cleaned up the coffee grounds, got them all in a wet paper towel for suction, put it on top, and that mess is now producing dirt that will grow things. Who are you listening to today? That's the story that I live and Mary live every day of our lives. And sometimes I do call her an idiot and I have to say I'm sorry. But I want you to know as we begin this series on what is marriage. Marriage is a sinning man that's met the incredible serpent slayer. It's a sinning woman that's met the incredible serpent slayer. And they're no longer sinners. They become princes and princesses of heaven that have the divine image, not just the divine image, but the divine person living inside of them, fueling the image of God so that we can look forward to going back to the garden where there'll be no more anger, no more murder, no more hate. Because the power of the forgiveness and the power of the cross takes us to a land where we're going to live in a garden forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us as we begin to let you define our marriages. I want to ask you, Lord, that you would help dads today to hear Genesis 1 through 3 and begin to instruct their kids. I pray that you would use what I've shared this morning to whet their appetite, give them a passion to let you be the Lord of their life and the one that gives them the information, the life-giving truth that changes their life. I just pray that in the next few hours, the next few days, that we're going to just see heaven poured out upon us in chains of marriages, in tongues that are protected and healed, and changed and transformed. Lord, help us not to lock what we learned today up in these walls. I pray that I would have just stimulated your children to spend time alone listening to you, letting you define marriage, and give me wisdom, Lord, to be able to not just teach them my own cultural views, but help, them to help me to be just a servant to help them to hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.